Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. everyone, this is Vikram from Quantlayer, and it's awesome to have you listening to our third podcast. Faison and I talk about our experience at Consensus, what we heard about the ICO space from the horse's mouth, that's Silicon Valley lawyers themselves. We also cover the recent Verge hack, our thoughts around how coin teams can secure their treasury better, how background checks would be a great use case for blockchain, M&A in the crypto space, and more. There's a lot of technical stuff in this one. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you got Quantlayer here. This is Vikram and also Faison, the wizard. Hey everyone. Yeah, so uh, I'm just dialing in here from Houston, visiting family. I think Faison's out in Brooklyn right now. Yeah, I'm in the Quantlayer office. Nice. It's been a pretty interesting couple of weeks since uh, since our last podcast. Last week was a big week in, in New York with the uh, Consensus event. We attended uh, one of the events that was really interesting. The people over at CoinList put on a, an event that got... Silicon Valley lawyers who are interested in the ICO space uh, and who are taking on ICO and security token type of clients, they had them come out to meet with startups to talk about the process. And that was really interesting. We got to meet with a couple lawyers, get a lay of the land in terms of what's going on with ICOs, what's going on with utility tokens, uh, and what's going on with future security tokens. With the utility tokens, we got the sense that you know they're pretty much on their way out in the U.S., the use case and the the type of specialty that you need in order to conduct a utility token offering is very specific. So companies like Filecoin have spent a lot of time and energy coming up with a business model around it. But most coin teams don't have a great case in the US for a utility token. So that was pretty interesting. I think we kind of like thought about that. It made sense. You know, we had thought about what could we offer theoretically as a utility token. There's really not a whole lot. So then we talked more broadly about how tokens can be used to augment the traditional fundraising process. So the lawyers are super interesting to talk to. We got a download on different kinds of offerings like the Reg D offering. That's kind of like a traditional venture type of offering. Right. Accredited Um, investors. And I think you're allowed to put out some amount of marketing material. And then there's two types of Reg D, right? That was what we learned. Yeah, there was like a lighter Reg D that I think you can have more materials in. And there was a, a more traditional accredited advance investor VC firm only type of Reg D offering. There was also Reg CF, which was kind of interesting. This was an offering that popped up after uh, Kickstarter and other kind of uh, crowdfunding. That's what the CF stands for. Other kind of crowdfunding sites were popping up. Uh, it allows a company to raise, I think, $1 million yep. through a bunch of investors. So not just like 10 investors, but I think up to 2,000 or something like that. Uh, so I think the limit there was that you can't raise more than 1,000 from a single investor. So the issue there becomes you have, you know, let's say you raise 700,000, that's going to be 700 plus investors. And the right. And it's, it's going to be a huge of that. Yeah, exactly. And I guess just dealing with, if you're a public company and you're dealing with that many people, you need a full-blown IR team. So if you could raise a million dollars, you're not going to be able to put that much to work to handle all your investors, you know, so that's, that's a big issue there. Yeah. But I think the takeaway for me from that event was that 
the landscape is actually more mature than we expected in terms of the law firms uh, having dealt with a number of ICOs and dealing with a number of ICOs around these different ways of registering. And uh, they were pretty knowledgeable about what works and what doesn't work for your given situation. So I think if you are thinking about an ICO, but you've been scared away because you think the SEC will come after you, it's definitely worth talking to a law firm because they're definitely very knowledgeable on the subject. Yeah. And they are the ones who are going to be doing your offering anyway. So I think there's no harm reaching out. There are a handful of firms there. There's no harm just reaching out to them and letting them know what you're thinking and getting their thoughts on it. But yeah, there are some really big firms there. Don't want to really name anyone here, but um, there's some big firms there and some smaller boutique type of firms. We talked to a couple of lawyers that hopefully we'll have on the podcast at some point in the future who can help us understand the environment and landscape a bit better and give, you know, kind of download you guys on all the stuff that we learned. Yeah. Looking forward to that. So it's also been a pretty busy week in crypto this week. It's Wednesday here. Mark's just getting crushed. If I pull up on-chain FX. I'm trying to use this one a lot more. Faison, have you come across this one? I've seen it, but I haven't used it all that heavily. Yeah. I've just been concerned. Like I hear so often that there's data that's just not in the best shape on CoinMarketCap. And on-chain FX seems to take a very serious, more professional approach to updating data. They seem to do it on a more regular basis. They don't offer a new coin until they have a whole bunch of checkboxes filled out. So like they won't offer a coin unless they can calculate the fees or the supply issued and be comfortable about being right about it. Anyway, I just pulled it up. It's just onchainfx.com. You know, Bitcoin's down 6%. Ethereum's down 10%. Market's just getting clobbered. I think some of it has to do with the fact that... So last year at a consensus, a lot of traders are typically going to events thinking that the event is going to be super positive for... I'll, I'll just talk from like the stock perspective. A lot of traders will go into sure. an event thinking that a stock is primed to pop based on what comes out of the event. So last year during consensus, Ethereum just flew during the event and then after the event. And a bunch of other altcoins flew too. And a lot of people attribute that to the kind of a larger audience size that was getting more familiar with crypto. And people wanted to have positions in a lot of these coins. And uh, so this year, a lot of people thought that, okay, this happened last year, therefore it'll happen again. I think some of the coins actually rose ahead of time. And then once uh, consensus happened, it just kind of petered out. And then after it petered out, maybe they lost steam. Maybe Now they're just selling off. So that was just kind of interesting. It's really tough to predict any of these kind of events. And the more people that think an event is going to happen, the likelihood that it happens just has less of an effect on the actual movement of the the coin or the stock. But hmm. yeah, it's just like people's expectations get out of whack. They get super bullish way ahead of when they should. And then when the event happens, things just fall apart. Interesting. So yeah, another coin that's just getting demolished is Verge. Um, oh yeah, from the recent hacks. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, they got hacked in the, using one of their uh, an exploit. And then I think it... Just yesterday, it was hacked again with the same modification of the same technique. Yeah. What happened there? Okay. So, yeah, I can dive into that a little bit. So, what's interesting to note about uh, Verge is that the block time or the difficulty is recalculated after every block based on the previous block time. So, it's uh, relatively dynamic. 
And unlike, you know, Bitcoin, where the difficulty changes on a much lower frequency, essentially by changing the block time, you can adjust the difficulty relatively quickly in Verge. So that's the first thing to note. The second item is that in an effort to give it ASIC resistance, uh, make it more decentralized, etc., Verge actually supports five different algorithms. You know, the S-crypt, the, I think it's, I don't remember all five, but there's five different algorithms you can use. And the way it's structured is, in theory, based on the, diff, you know, the diff, you should, each of them should have an approximately equal payout. There's a uh, an attack, and it's an attack that's been known in the Bitcoin community for a while, called a time warp. Now, one of the features of a distributed system is that it's hard to reach consensus on time, because, especially in a trustless distributed system, because who is the keeper of like what the absolute time is? So in Verge, essentially, what happens is a block can be submitted with a timestamp that's actually before the most recent block on the chain to account for that. And so I think Verge allows, I don't remember the exact number, but I think essentially you can propose a block that's up to an hour before the time that's in the, uh, like in the latest block. And so what a time warp attack was doing was uh, the attacker basically submitted a bunch of blocks that were an hour before the latest block and what that does is it throws off this dynamic recalculation of the difficulty. So what essentially is happening is the difficulty keeps dropping. Now, what that would normally do is if you drop the difficulty, everyone that's mining essentially gets the equivalent benefit. Like if you lower the difficulty, you're lowering it for everyone. But the thing that really made this dangerous in Verge was one, how often the difficulty is recalculated that increase the severity of the impact of this time warp attack. But the thing that made it beneficial to only a subset of the uh, miners was that the difficulty was only lowered for the algorithm that the attacker was using, which I think in the first attack was S-Crypt. So essentially by using this uh, time warp, they get the difficulty to lower on just one algorithm. And so someone else has published the exact metrics. There's a good write-up on this. But instead of taking like 10% of the uh, difficulty, they were able to get it down to like 0.04 of what it's supposed to do be. And so I think they were making something like a million dollars every 80 seconds or, or uh, oh, wow. something. Yeah. And then uh, because that attack is essentially baked into the structure of Verge, you know, you have dynamic parameters for the difficulty and then you have this multiple algos. The attack was repeated uh, using two algorithms rather than one. And so we'll see how that plays out. But I think it only strengthens the position of the much more conservative Bitcoin bias crowd in terms of, you know, making small steps when it comes to changing algorithms or trying new hashing algorithms, new block difficulty parameters and the such. So in theory, you can do a time warp in Bitcoin, but because it's just one algorithm, you're not going to, the benefits will extend to everyone. And secondly, because the difficulty recalculates over such a long time period, like everything you would do would actually have a very small impact on the difficulty. So that's why it's resistant to an attack like this, even though it's been known about for years, but not was not the case for Verge. Yeah, the the funny thing about Verge, it's uh, it's got so much controversy around it. I think back in you know October, November, December, it went from a really tiny market cap to almost a billion dollars worth, and. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, and 
I mean, it was ahead of Zcash at one point. Zcash is a very trustworthy coin. It has a large uh, foundation behind it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Verge, it seemed like it had a pretty small dev team. I remember going onto their GitHub, reading through their issues. And when the coin was taking off, a lot of people just joined GitHub, like non-software developers just joined GitHub and went on to their GitHub issues and started complaining about things. They started complaining about the price and you know all kinds of stuff. And it has just a ton of controversy around it. It seems like the traditional Bitcoin pro crowd is uh, views Verge as very antithetical to you know what they're doing. And as far as privacy coins go, a lot of privacy researchers have claimed that there's a lot of privacy concerns around Verge as well. And the weird thing is, you know, they got hacked a week or two ago, like you mentioned, and then again just the other day, and it's fallen a little bit. You know, it's down 14, 15% day while the market's down 10. In, in any other world, I think that this thing would just get completely demolished, you know, down 40, 50%, but it hasn't. As far as the five algorithms go, what's like the conceptual reason behind that? Why would they want uh, five algorithms? Uh, I think they call it like the deep or dark gravity wave is like their, you know, that's their marketing name for this thing. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, I think the idea is that because they're, it's supposed to balance out, in theory, it makes it more ASIC resistant and more decentralized because someone that has a device that runs S-Script can contribute and someone that has an ASIC can contribute and someone that's you know doing some sort of CPU mining can contribute. But the idea, the goal is for ASIC resistance and decentralization, as I understand it. Gotcha. Is it true that the more algorithms you you have, it exposes a larger attack surface? Or is that a pretty simplistic way of looking at that? Uh, no, I don't think that's unreasonable. I think in these sort of systems, the more of your parameters that are dynamic, the larger the surface area of the types of things people can manipulate, successfully or unsuccessfully. So in the case of Verge, the you know combination of the very sh- dynamic and short difficulty change and a short block time combined with the multiple algos resulted in you know, an attack that would not be possible if only one of those things were true. So I think you're just creating more combinations of things that are possible. And some of those are going to be positive, some will be negative, and then some will probably do nothing. Right. Definitely an increased surface area. Uh, it does make me worry just, again, broadly around how strong the networks are of these smaller coins, because there's so many ways to attack them. I think even Satoshi in one of the message chains, he was talking about how there's really an infinite number of ways to attack the Bitcoin network. And that was in Bitcoin's infancy. And, you know, the, luckily they survived and, and all that. But a lot of these newer coins and smaller coins are a year old, even less than that. Hardware gets stronger. Attacks get more obvious. Like we have this attack. You know, I, I imagine that, you know, people are going to look for a way to use a similar type of attack on other coins. I'm sure there's an, at least a few dozen people looking for every single coin that's susceptible to the same sort of time warp combined with multiple algo yeah. attack. <laughs> right. So it points to a pretty big concern around just these smaller coins networks. You know, A, they might, uh, there's a 51% attack that's you know, one type of attack. Uh, there's the attack that we just talked about right now. Which is when you have so many attack surfaces, I just, it's very concerning around all the smaller coins networks. Yeah, exactly. And especially like... A lot of the, uh, you know, structure of these different blockchains is based around there's not an economic incentive for bad actors to behave in any way except what's beneficial to the network. Generally speaking now, you know, if in this case of the Verge, you can argue it's actually a design flaw because it does allow malicious behavior. But 
there's nothing to stop something like a nation state that doesn't want to see, you know, let's say I try and launch some privacy coin in a country that is very anti-crypto and like, yeah, it has the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollar market cap. It might not be economically sensible for that to be attacked by anyone, but then that nation state might actually be able to just put on an attack relatively inexpensively to shut it down. So these things are very vulnerable in the early stages. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I think there had been talk about, you know, in Bitcoin's early years that uh, a nation state could do something like that. They rack up a whole bunch of the hashing power and then attack the network. But there's just so many of these coins and it's just ridiculous. I, I don't, I imagine we're going to see a lot more of these types of hacks. And that's on the, the hacking of the coin networks. On the other hand, there's also just, uh, I don't know, I think we were talking about this earlier, just um, there was a another uh, token that had, I think, 2,000 of its Ether stolen out of its uh, primary wallet. So we see those kind of hacks, you know, that kind of stuff, super, super concerning as well. You know, both of us are software developers. You know, we build software for clients. We're always thinking about ways we can limit any kinds of security risks for our, our clients when we're building them software. I imagine for crypto developers... Even just traditional UX and UI web developers who are building wallets and that sort of thing, they need to keep this keep it on top of their mind as well. Yeah. And I think there's a you know, there's a few different layers there. There's the one like the code should function as intended, which is if I say that only user A has access to these funds under these circumstances, like that code should work. Otherwise, you know, if there's a bug, that's a security flaw. The second is structural, like which is like the way this code is designed rather than implemented, there's a security flaw. So you could argue something like the Verge hack was at the design level rather than like an implementation bug. And then as we get to like companies that are handling customer funds or, you know, tokens at a system level, there needs to be a design for how funds are managed, fraud is mitigated. Because we what you're seeing with a lot of these hacks is like if a fund has 2000 ether, they have 2000, you know, 1900 ether sitting in one wallet. And when it gets hacked, it's just all gone. And if you look back at the uh, history of like the early digital payment services, so something like, you know, PayPal was one of the most successful. So I actually read a book founders at work by Jessica Livingston of uh, YC. And it's essentially an interview with a bunch of different founders about the early days of their companies. And one of the people that is interviewed is Max uh, Levchkin. I hope I pronounced that right, uh, of PayPal. And he was the one that was the crypto, cryptography, not cryptocurrency expert at the company. And what he speaks about is essentially banks thought that it was impossible to do digital payments because of hacking and fraud. And were able to succeed primarily because they had really effective fraud management that kept loss down below a certain percent. And, you know, 20 years later, we see that not just PayPal, but there's tons of payment providers. Banks all have online banking and money transmission. And it's a somewhat solved problem where there is fraud, there is stolen funds, identity theft, all that. But it's, I'm sure, managed at some reasonable loss rate, whether that's 1%, 2%. And a lot of that is not to do with like writing perfect code or having some perfect piece of software. It's a lot of it is just how the system is designed in terms of how much money you can transfer at a time, how much money can be held, just onboarding users. So I think the crypto or blockchain space, you know, there are some of these bigger companies that do some, they keep some of their funds in cold storage, some in hot wallets. 
there's definitely, you know, transmission limits. But I think a lot of these smaller ICO companies have not implemented or even are aware of what some systemic best practices should be in dealing with their funds, company funds, and just generally transacting business. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think that that there's definitely a lot of maturation that has to happen in the industry there. Yeah. I wonder what the reasoning is behind, you know, behind storing all your funds in a single wallet. There is, of course, the ease of use, but that's not enough. Like just because it's easy to store all your stuff in a wallet doesn't mean it's a good solution. You get to be on those cool lists that show that you're in one of the top 100 biggest wallets. Right, right, right. <laughs> I wonder if you could do something like you have one to two percent in a hot wallet and then the rest in cold storage or if dealing with cold storage is a huge pain, I wonder if there's some kind of clever multi-sig solution you could have around like the company funds and then the one to 2% hot wallet, which are like uh, cash flow funds. And as you're spending out of cash flow, maybe there's some kind of multi-sig solution that can uh, transfer assets from the multi-sig wallet to the hot wallet. Cause you can't do it from cold just cause it would be a pain. I understand that, but there needs to be some kind of like middle ground. Yeah, there needs to be an operational layer that sits on top of like the actual funds and cold storage and hot wallets that a small ICO team can interact with easily, but actually provides a level of security, but really more loss management. So I think with a lot of these cryptocurrencies, it's like, oh, as long as you don't lose your private key, nothing bad can happen because it's mathematically secure. But in reality, like hacks do happen. Keys do get compromised. You know, people's credit cards get stolen. So I think the systems need to be designed to handle some loss and just minimize the consequences. So, you know, we both work in Elixir, which is based on Erlang, and there's the let it crash philosophy. And it doesn't map one to one, but essentially every, say for a web server, every transaction is wrapped in an individual process that is able to crash and doesn't bring everything down around it. And I think that thought of, isolation and damage control is something that needs to come in operationally to the, you know, the custody side of these companies. And as you pointed to before, it's, it's something that traditional companies have dealt with for, for ages, even as recently as it was back in early 2015, there was a money transfer company called zoom with an X. Yep. And they, I'm actually, I use them to send money to Canada. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so they lost uh, $30 million. Maybe I don't use yeah. them to send money to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the CFO at the time, I think his email had been spoofed or someone's email had been spoofed. And the finance department was, I think this is what I think happened. I think the finance department was contacted by what it looked like to have been an email coming from the CFO. And it demanded a transfer of $30 million or whatever to an account overseas. And that happened and the CFO ended up resigning. It's like super embarrassing. You're a money transfer company and you lost money like this. And this was bank to bank. So they weren't able to, I don't know if they were able to even recover the funds. They ended up taking a one-time charge. So that kind of indicates that they weren't able to. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the crypto uh, solutions are like, because this problem is not solved in the traditional space. It still happens. Right. Because the, the irreversibility adds a layer of difficulty to this problem where you, you can't mimic a lot of the solutions that are there in like normal digital money transfer. Like for smaller volumes, essentially, the solution has been to just have a trusted third party maintain the ledger. 
So if you have a PayPal account or a Venmo account, like I just have a, you know, a couple hundred bucks in my Venmo balance. And I send you money when we go for ramen. And then when we go for ramen the next time you send me money and that's okay because like we trust them to hold that amount of money. And if with PayPal, if there's a dispute or, you know, they'll resolve it or they'll lock up your funds depending who you ask. But you just don't have that feature in crypto. You know, there are things like multisig that introduce a third party, but there's fundamentally not a good way of reversing stuff the way there is with like a central ledger. So it'll be interesting to see how the solutions play out. Right. I mean, Bitcoin was introduced as peer-to-peer electronic cash. So it wouldn't make sense that there would be something built into the protocol that would allow for, you know, refunds and things like that. Like we don't get a refund with cash. I give you a $5 bill that's yours now. I guess at the state level, the state can force you to give the $5 back to me or something like that. But as far as the actual... You haven't seen the, the old trick where you tie a string to it and you, <laughs> you watch cartoons? <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. Multi-sig. With multi-sig, I'm sure there's other kind of security concerns. Well, multi-sig, you're essentially that. introducing a trusted third party into a trustless system. Right. So it, that, that's the, you know, depending who you ask, that then becomes the weak point of the system. Right. It's, it's always interesting, though, because there's no pure 100% decentralization. You have to give something up. You can't be 100% decentralized. You can't have like five algorithms, be ASIC resistant, be 100% decentralized, have multi-sig that supports everything. I mean, that kind of solution is just untenable and kind of unreasonable. So, you know, what are we willing to give up with respect to centralization and decentralization? But yeah, I mean, Coinbase applied for like a a banking license recently. I mean, maybe they're looking to get into the space. Sure, a lot of people are trying to work on third-party solutions. I think Ben Franklin had a famous quote. He was an early Bitcoin investor. (laughs) Those who would sacrifice decentralization for security deserve neither. (laughs) Is that? I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think think he did did say that. He might be Satoshi too. I don't know. That's probably what it is. So Coinbase just announced today an acquisition of uh, of Paradex, and that came to mind just based on what we were talking about recently with respect to, you know, say you had a treasury management solution with some in hot wallets and some in uh, cold storage or multi-sig. So Paradex is one of these decentralized exchanges. So what they want to do is allow you to be able to trade from your cold store, from basically your any wallet to another wallet. So say your ledger, I don't actually, I don't know if they support ledger, but basically a hardware wallet to another hardware wallet. So the thing there is you actually don't need to send funds to a Coinbase or a Bittrex or a Binance. You can actually trade just directly from your wallet. That just brought to mind the, it was just a digression. The, the Reg D stuff we had been talking about earlier when we were at that CoinList event, one of the questions that came up around Reg D was what would be one of the potential downsides where the SEC would come after a security token ICO that had been done following Reg D, which is probably one of the safer ways to proceed. And I think this was one of the items that came up, which was like the tokens need to be, you know, saleable or tradable. But if it happens in a decentralized exchange, it's not well defined what the rules are on that. So that just came up, came to mind. Yeah. But uh, continue. Um, yeah. So no, with respect to Paradex, uh, this is really interesting. I mean, I, what is Coinbase's plan? Um, they're a centralized exchange. They're applying for a banking license. They, right. they bought uh, 
But oh. Paradex is not, Paradex is not, right? <laughs> Paradex is the opposite of all of that. It's supposed to be a so how's that work? decentralized exchange. Yeah. And I think Paradex is on top of the 0x protocol, which is this uh, ZRX token that's supposed to enable like relaying of transactions. And I think they had said they actually don't take fees. So I don't know. I don't know what the play is here. Maybe it's just to for Coinbase to be able to offer token trading more easily but they're also not yeah. they're not offering it to americans yet it sounds like it's going to be non-us and international clients of coinbase's first yeah i find some of these acquisitions so interesting because you have companies that are doing everything to be you know follow all the regulations legitimate you know banks or exchanges and then a lot of these small companies they're acquiring have taken none of those steps this is an extreme example, but it'd be akin to like eBay acquiring like the Silk Road right. years ago <laughs> to like expand their user base and just be like, we're not going to let anyone in the US buy stuff. Like, well, <laughs> I don't know if that's good enough. So it's, it's just the M&A space is very interesting and at times hilarious in crypto. Yeah. And it's funny too, because Coinbase is just on a massive spree. I mean, they must be just flush with cash, right? Uh, yeah. So they bought... Uh, yeah. So they bought Paradex today. They're also doing a whole bunch of stuff. They have like a venture arm. This is all like announced in the last couple of months. They have a venture arm. They've applied for a banking license. They bought Paradex. They are trying to do a lot. So I don't know. I don't know how that'll play out. I think with them, one thing that happened to them is that like you look at them and you look at Bittrex and Bittrex carries hundreds of tradable crypto assets. Uh, Coinbase just has a handful, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and Litecoin. There's four. And they haven't been able to add anything else. And then Gemini came along and just recently added Zcash, uh, which is great, and Bitcoin Cash as well, I believe. And so, uh, you know, Coinbase must be feeling some pressure, at least on the institutional side, to be able to get more coins. And they just haven't had any, added anything. So maybe they're feeling some pressure there and that, that involved buying up this this Paradex decentralized exchange. So, yeah, um, we've talked a lot about like, you know, financial uses of blockchain and their implications. But an article that I uh, was reading earlier today, which I thought, like, I think that, you know, blockchain has a lot of use as like a record for, you know, things that need to be stored that aren't necessarily money, but need to be true. And Switzerland is working on securing uh, academic credentials on there, which I think is a really interesting concept because I remember the amount of stuff that people would put on their resumes that were like borderline <laughs> was pretty, pretty generous at times. You know, I went to a co-op program where people would interview every four months uh, and there was just a lot of very suspicious looking resumes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you've run across some yeah, I mean, people, 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 in your time. people, of course, always want to make themselves look the best they can. So they're going to take some liberties at, at doing that. Yeah. So I think stuff like academic credentials that can just be independently verified. That's a pretty cool initiative. Yeah, that's cool. Because you do hear about like so-and-so CEO of company X uh, had to re resign because it turned out the university they claimed to have gone to, they never went to. Stuff like that. I mean, there's actually, I've seen it in the news like at least a handful of times every year. So that's happening at that level. So I imagine you see, you definitely see a lot of it. Yeah. And the other benefit I see to systems like this is, in my opinion, a lot of these businesses that do provide that as a service 
because the nature of that service is that one or two companies will tend to dominate the market, they become a little monopolistic with all of the bad things that come with that. So either they're just like really bad at what they do. They often don't care about the security, privacy, whatever the end users, and they just are unnecessarily expensive. So one, you know, recent example being, you know, with, with credit reporting companies uh, getting hacked. In my mind, their efforts to actually secure user data are substandard and a lot of them get repeatedly hacked and the problem remains unsolved uh, because they essentially have a monopoly on that market. So being able to move that stuff to a decentralized system would be great because you just remove this tax on society to provide the service. Yeah. So when I was at Morgan Stanley working on a biometric security IPO, we had to do a background check on all the major uh, members of management. So CEO, CTO, you know, head of sales, head of product. I think we did, we had to cover like five or six people, basically just whoever the top people are, the biggest shareholders. And it was expensive. First of all, it's very exp- invasive too. It's very expensive and very invasive because you're finding out all kinds of personal details about these people. And you know, obviously you're under NDA, so you're not going to talk about them and stuff, but it's a weird that me as a 23 year old could just know all this personal information about all these people. So that was pretty crazy. So I wonder how you can do it securely. Like, how do you privatize this kind of information? Yeah, there's probably some interesting solutions where you can require like, you know, like authorization. So there's some proof that this like, okay, I have my background report on some blockchain and someone can request access and I can authorize them or I can authorize like my company on my behalf or the company I'm applying to, that sort of thing. You know, with, with the tools that are out there with smart contracts and multi-sig, there's definitely a solution. But another, just from a like UX standpoint, having to fill out one of those sheets, and it's always some stupid piece of paper, every single time you need a background check done is a kind of a pain. It would be nice to just have that in one place that's a trusted store that, can just be referenced or where you can just release access by giving someone a one-time use key or something. Because for me, over the last 10 years, I think I've had something like 14 addresses and a number of jobs while I was like becoming a programmer. And so it's always a nuisance to fill that out. And a lot of these companies will verify every single thing. So it's like, oh, you had this random job for three weeks in Colorado. Can you get a hold of your supervisor at the time? And it's like, well, I don't think he works there. And my other coworker was like a recovering meth addict. So I don't think, like, why do you need to know his information? (laughs) So it'd be great to just avoid that whole process. It's it's a huge pain. A lot of these companies, I mean, in the startup world, some startups just, you know, you say you're an engineer, one startup, you go to another and and another. Over the course of five years, you've been at like four or five startups. That's pretty common. A lot of people do that. That's fine. Or even, for, you know, we've had to do these for uh, consulting yeah. clients. So even between projects, you're having to do new back Right, projects. and that could be every few months even. So, and some of these places just go out of business. So I don't even think the background check companies get the best picture they could based on their process. Right. Like, I fundamentally don't trust most of them on their ability to execute. Because I feel like it's one of those businesses that's driven by like capturing the market and ability to do sales more so than just being really good at background checks. Same thing with like credit reporting, but that's, I guess with background checks, you just kind of, uh, if you're at a small company and you need to do it, maybe you probably just Google, like, who do I go to? If you're at a big company, you probably already have a relationship place with some contract 
you know, five year long contract or something. And yeah, it's tough to break into. But yeah, that's cool. So Switzerland's doing it with academic credentials. Like an obvious use case is just a broader background check and kind of saying Yeah, background checks, credentialing. Right. Uh would be great to, you know, great. I go to my doctor's office and I see that they have their MD on their wall, but if I actually care about that, I would rather verify against the blockchain than the thing that they could have right. bought on either. <laughs> One thing I do want to, we talked a little bit about acquisitions before. So I thought it would be interesting to come back to that. So I'm just really interested in how M&A is going to play out in this space. Because you have companies like BitGo, it's a Bitcoin wallet, and they're trying to build a custody solution. So they ended up buying this like 40, 50, 60 year old firm. And I wonder if we'll see more of that kind of stuff. You have all the Binance's, you know, just bankers. They're so cash rich. rich. Yeah. Because I mean, these old companies are what worth nine figures, 10 figures. And that's what some of these exchanges are turning over every year in just cash. And it doesn't seem like their expenses are, I mean, a lot of these are very lean operations on like a revenue to employee basis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how BitGo is, how big BitGo is. It's probably pretty small. Binance, I think we had seen a metric. It was like it had put, uh, I think it compared one bank uh, with thousands, tens of thousands of employees next to Binance and Binance was producing more profit than they were on 100 employees. So the revenue and profit per employee ratio is just it's just insane. Yeah. And that won't last long term because as regulation comes into place and these companies become more you know, in line with whatever regulation, I'm sure they'll have a lot more compliance and reporting and all and customer service roles to fill. But fundamentally, like a lot of these companies are capturing like global markets out the door. So that's how they're getting to these revenue yeah. numbers. I wonder how else M&A will play out. So we have all these companies that are cash rich that can kind of buy into this space. Custody is a huge solution for institutions. Institutions need proper custody solutions in order to, to play in this market. Institutions need liquidity. So I wonder if there's some kind of play there where these crypto exchanges can start, if there's any kind of tech or anything in place that they can buy in order to help them improve liquidity, that would help a ton. Yeah. So yeah, it's just interesting. I I just wonder how all that stuff will play out. Uh, Another thing that I've been seeing more of now is just like crypto in the media. And I don't mean like news and, you know, financial articles about it, but, uh, if the first place it showed up where I was expecting it to show up was uh, yeah. the show Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's a hilarious show. They do such a good job of either capturing accurately or characterizing, you know, things that happen in the tech space. And it's probably one of my favorite shows out there. I thought their way, of, their treatment of crypto was very realistic with the exception of the ICO not raising much money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only part that, very, and then I think in other media you're now starting to see the like poorly thought out treatment. So I watch another show mm-hmm. called Billions. Like this, it's a bit of a ridiculous show on Showtime about this like billionaire hedge fund manager and all the shady stuff he's up to. It's a little over the top, but it's quite entertaining. And like the new thing that happened was uh, he had some like use under government investigation, and he needed to pay someone under the table. So he's like, I'll pay you in crypto. <laughs> that was that was uh, it. how did he do it just give him like a usb drive or something or what oh it didn't go it, it didn't really go much beyond that it, that was just his like it was just you know it's one of those like it's a catch-all for like i can send you this secret right. money magically 
uh, not really delving into the like, well, if you're under a government watch, where are you going to suddenly buy a hundred or three hundred million dollars so, in crypto? And, and it's so uh, traceable. Gonna, it's like, why? Yeah. Why would you send crypto right, if right. you're going to do that? I think the legacy of Silk Road is that cryptocurrency has this impression of anonymity that isn't there, and so I think media that is not Silicon Valley has captured that portion of it. So now I'll pay you in crypto is like, you know, a way of dealing with like getting around right. money transfer issues. So I'm sure we'll see more of that. A lot of sort of inaccurate representations of crypto in the media, but it's, it's funny to see it start appearing outside of the normal avenues of just like all the medium and yeah. financial articles. It is. It does bring up something interesting though. Like if you have uh you know, you have to assume that the technology for blockchain analysis will get better. I mean, it just will. The analysis of blockchains 50 years from now will be exponentially better than right. it is today. Right? Right. Right. Like anything you put out there that can be seen by everyone, you should assume will be figured out what it is. Even the stuff that's, I, I would argue, even some of the stuff that you think is private, you should not trust that it can be figured out 20, right. 30, 40, I mean, we saw, we've seen, we've seen something like this before in the nineties and early two thousands, uh, when Frank Quattrone, uh, investment banker at credit Suisse, he was like the IPO God. He was just, uh, dominating the IPO space. He was CSFB was winning tons of IPOs because of him. He has sent out a pretty innocuous email to everyone saying, Hey, everyone, it's time to clean out our drives. It's trying to, uh, or something like that. And of course, the lawyers during discovery found it and it went into evidence and it, of course, affected him. This has nothing to do with blockchains or anything like that. It's just if you put something out to even a small group, there is a likelihood that it'll go out to a much larger group. So if you expand that analogy to like blockchain, not only it's not a small group, it's actually everybody. Anyone who can look at it can see what's going on. It's a publishing yeah. platform. Like that's really a one way to look at it. In, ter in terms of privacy, you should think of it as like a publishing platform. Now, there are specific privacy minded blockchains that are arguably more secure, but you should really do your diligence before assuming anything is going to be anonymous or right. private. Right. And I to my point takeaway. earlier about the technology just going to be better for analysis, lead devs at Monero, lead devs at Zcash, it's not like you can just put up a private blockchain and it's going to be private forever. They're constantly augmenting it and improving it for different and new attack surfaces. So that needs to, even if you use a, a private blockchain now, you better hope that that blockchain is going to remain private and has good devs behind it, has a good team behind it that'll help keep it private long-term. Because it's just, if crypto gets big, then governments are going to have to deal with it and they're going to put tons of resources behind it. I can imagine like 50 years from now, that I, not even 50, say 20 years from now, the IRS having some pretty awesome tools to analyze whether or not Bitcoin traders were, were paying their taxes. So, and they can go back a long time to figure out if that's the case or not. Yeah. So I think for any of our listeners that are uh, billionaires <laughs> under indictment, definitely stick to your traditional methods of shady money transfer. Uh, don't dive into crypto yet. <laughs> hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. 
or email me at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at quantlayer.com. I will write back. Thanks. Thanks.